Eric, uh, I've learned um, painfully <laughs> that relapse is, is often a, a part of the landscape of recovery. Um, and even if, if the, the broader movement is, is toward recovery, there, are, there can be side trips <laughs> um, in, into relapse. What guidance can you provide uh, for parents um, so that they're, they're ready when, um, when this kind of thing uh, comes up for them? Appreciate that. Um, you know, I would say this, relapse is always a possibility. Relapse is not a guarantee. Some people will say, well, relapse is just part of the process. I don't agree with that statement blankly. I think relapse is always a potential. And while I don't, I would not want a parent to sit in fear. There is the sense of this is a possibility. And if it does happen, what can we do to help facilitate a return to recovery? Um, and so, and I would, I would, I would also encourage hope, you know, even if there is a relapse, do not give up hope that, you know, plenty of people go through a period of recovery or plenty of kids, you know, children struggle um, and may achieve some recovery. And if they relapse, there is, you know, as long as, as long as there is hope, there's the ability to get back into recovery um, and, and pick up again, pick, when I say pick up <laughs> in the wrong way, uh, pick up recovery again to get back into that, into that mode. Um, having been the director of the relapse unit, I've had patients who have had, five, 10, 15 treatment experiences, which sounds like an extraordinary amount. And it is, it is. I remember giving a one-year coin to a young man who said, look, I've been through 15 detoxes, six rehabs, and this is the first time I've gotten a year. And I became very choked up when we were in chapel and giving his first year coin. Um, And, you know, what I will say is his, his family never gave up hope. They were always willing to do what they could do with the resources they had available at that moment. Um, to, to help him in his recovery journey. So I think, the, I think the first and foremost, most important thing is try not to give up hope. And that's easy for me to sit here, say that, um, but that would be my, my biggest encouragement with that particular thing. Eric, did the specialized treatment programs at Karen, like for patients with opioid use disorder or uh, older adults, have a greater degree of success than the non-tailored programs? I don't know if they have a greater degree of success than the non-tailored programs. I think what they do provide is nuanced treatment for whatever that specialty is. You know, for instance, we have a healthcare providers program, and that is a unit for doctors and nurses and folks who have a medical license. And they have a particular experience in the world. They have access to drugs that nobody else have, right? We have a young adults program. And when the young adult male program was developed in the early 2000s, I forget the exact year, but that was for young adults who are 19 to 24. And they have specific needs that they might not have been able to relate to the 45-year-old banker who's struggling with his wife ready to leave him and his, you know, his kids in private school and they're like, look, I can't get out of my parents' basement. Like, I can't relate to this career issue. And so when you concentrate a particular group, it allows them to feel normal. You know, I feel like I belong. Um, and to be able to discuss particular issues 
that they might not otherwise discuss because of shame, really because of shame, um, you know, in, in a larger group. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I am the director of the Legal Professionals Program. And one of the things I'll tell my lawyers on our first meeting, I say this all the time, law school messes with the way you think, period. And every lawyer gets a big grin on their face. They start to smile. They nod their head and they have a bit of gratitude that somebody recognizes what law school does to you as a human being. And while it prepares you very well for this job you're getting into, it really is the antithesis of step one, right? Lawyers are one of the few, if only profession, where they are taught academically and professionally. You don't give up. You argue to the end. You never, ever, ever surrender. Well, that doesn't sound like step one. And I'll tell my lawyers, look, you're the best at what you do, and you have the hardest time with step one. Second to you is surgeons, but you are number one because academically you're trained that way. And so when we talk about this specialty program, I think it has a great benefit for the various groups that we have. And whether we're talking about the executive unit, lawyers, healthcare, young adults, the teens. I mean, teens have to be treated differently than we do an adult. They have a different set of problems. They have a different set of issues. They have a different worldview and world experience that I think needs to be validated, appreciated, treated, um, and, and then how to approach recovery from that standpoint. Um, right today, I had a, a 30-year-old uh, gentleman who we were talking about what the recovery is going to look like. I said, look, man, you got to find a bunch of 30-year-olds like yourself that like to surf, bike, dine out, and have a good time. You've got to learn to live life on life's terms and enjoy it. If your recovery is trudgery, it's probably not going to last. But his experience of being on the upswing of his recovery, uh, excuse me, his, his uh, professional trajectory and having a fiance and what's it going to be like to get married sober, we need to address those things specifically. So while I'm a big proponent of, look, an alcoholic's an alcoholic, an alcoholic, like everybody's got the same damn issue, right? <laughs> they don't have an off switch. It's just, you know, it's not there. Um, I think there's an importance and a benefit to the nuance of finding a group, um, finding a community that you, you can identify with and say, yeah, you know, I can really hear that. So I think, I think there's a benefit of both that real heterogeneous, like we're all different, but we're all here for the same reason. And also finding a specific group that we can say, yeah, we've all got this same nuanced problem that I can really find um, some comfort and some solace in somebody who really gets where I'm at, what I'm struggling with. So Eric, uh, it does appear that we are at or near the conclusion of this terrible pandemic, but, but the effect of it I'm, I'm led to believe is that so many more people find themselves challenged with substance use and mental health issues. And I, I've heard that isolation is, is often attributed what, what are you finding? What, what, what are you learning about this? Uh, we need another hour. Um, you, the, the, the fact is, and I think the most common statement I've heard in the past two plus years is, look, COVID didn't make, and it didn't make me an alcoholic, but it sure accelerated the process. You know, one of the things we know just um, by looking at the, the, the information available is that alcohol sales have skyrocketed, skyrocketed since the pandemic, uh, the shutting down of the country. Um, to the tune, and I'll just throw some data out there for people like to marinate in numbers. 
Um, retail sales of alcohol, that being when you buy alcohol, take it home, not at a restaurant or a bar. In the month of May, typically from 2015, 16, 17, 18, the month of May is about $4 billion in retail sales. 4.1, 4.2, 4.1. When the pandemic hit, that jumped to $4.8 billion. Fairly big number. Then it jumped to $5 billion. And this past year, in the month of May, we've exceeded $6 billion in retail sales of alcohol just for that month. It's not getting better, right? So we know that the alcohol consumption has gone up. Gambling, online gambling, the, the prevalence of that, so many states legalizing it, the inundation of um, you know, the, the advertising, if you watch the morning news, every third commercial is for a gambling, um, you know, platform, DraftKings and whatever. And I don't want to villainize anything, but we've increased the spending on advertising tremendously, uh, from, and I think it was 2019 was like $15 million a year to, to 2020 was $154 million a year. And currently each one of the platforms is spending $15 million a month. So that's well of 60, 90 million a month for each platform. People are gambling tremendously. So there's been a huge impact, huge impact on addictive processes throughout the, 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 the pandemic. Um, some of them have gone back down. Pornography use went up when the, when the, um, Pandemic hit and the shutdown, pornography use has gone back down to pre-pandemic levels. We can track, you know, how many people are viewing porn, what they're viewing, so on and so forth. Those statistics are out there. Um, I always like justifying to my significant other, it's just research. Honestly, it's just research when, I, when I'm looking at the numbers. But the fact is we know that both gambling and, and alcoholism has incredibly increased through this process. And to your point, you use the word isolation. That was an incredibly big contributor to it. Normalization. Uh, virtual happy hours. Instead of having a nice little four ounce pour, I'm having, you know, they call it, you know, the mommy or the daddy glass, which is a, a 16 ounce pour of whatever your favorite libation is. Um, and it's happening earlier and earlier in the day. Look, I can get my work done. I'm working from home. I don't have a commute. I'm shaving. I'm getting back three hours out of my day. I can start drinking at two o'clock in the afternoon, 12 o'clock, because everybody does. You know, do you really know what's in this water bottle? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Um, and so, the behaviors, there's an environment where the behaviors have been able to increase, um, and it's and it's quite staggering. Um, I'll finish the question with this particular piece. People have asked me, Eric, you know, did you slow down during the pandemic? I said, no, I haven't worked this hard in 20 years. I've worked more in the last two years than I have in the last 20 years of, of my career, um, just because people are really struggling. So I think it's it's incredibly important. The opposite of, of isolation being connectivity for people to feel connected, to people feel like they're not so alone, that they feel like they have, you know, responsibility to themselves, to others, accountability, um, and, and, and feel some sense of support if they can build that. It's incredibly important because the pandemic has been, had a traumatic, traumatic impact on, on, on the disease of addiction. Um, Eric, there seem to always be new and different tools being talked about for treatment. But are any of them really showing um, significant effect to maintain and, and help recovery? 
Yeah, um, that's a great question. And what's on the cutting edge? Um, I will brag about Karen for just a moment. We just opened our new research center. And so you know, I want to feel like we're at the forefront of, of you know, helping develop new and exciting things. I think in the past, let me say the past, you know, five to seven to 10 years, you know, we've implemented some therapeutic modalities, some medications um, that help with the recovery process um, and without, you know, undue, undue advertising for products, you know, medicated or medication assisted therapy, the idea of using um, a, a, a craving reducer, something along the lines like uh, naltrexone or Vivitrol, which they're also using for gambling addiction at this point. I mean, those medications were initially for alcoholism and for opioid addiction. They're actually finding that Vivitrol and naltrexone help with um, gambling cravings, which I think is fascinating because we didn't have anything prior to that. Um, therapeutic modalities such as dialectical behavioral therapy, which was originally developed to help with personality disorder, which was borderline personality disorder and, and the complications that it, that it had. We are using DBT for short um, in the in, in the recovery uh, you know, process, and it's really, really beneficial. You know, one of the things that's becoming very apparent is the implication of trauma in addiction. And um, there was a therapy that was developed, I forget how many number of years ago, it's relatively recent, called cognitive processing therapy or CPT. And it is specific, specifically targeted for PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And it was initially developed for combat veterans coming back from across seas. Uh, or combat zones where they've, they've experienced, you know, trauma and have PTSD. They're also finding extremely useful for um, sexual assault victims. And so, you know, when we have somebody who has a specific trauma with PTSD symptoms, if we employ the cognitive processing therapy along with the other therapies and 12-step, you know, um, facilitation that we find that it's very helpful. So it's not necessarily one particular thing, but it's a combination of these therapies that tend to be very helpful for folks. And we're, we're finding really, really good um, outcomes with, with a number of these. Um, I know there's some research, research on some other um, medication-assisted therapies, which I'm not qualified to get into immediately. But there's definitely some research um, that is looking at treatment depression, treatment-resistant depression, that might contribute to somebody's alcoholism or drug use. So if we can, you know, concurrently address mental health issues and somebody's, you know, chemical issues or, or addictive issues, that we find that very, very helpful. One of the things we know that if we send somebody to treatment and we don't treat their co-occurring issues of mental health or medical issues, chronic pain, for instance, um, there's there's really a, a good chance of relapse because, you know, look, somebody doesn't feel better in the recovery, they're going to go back to what they knew they were, you know, knew worked at the moment, at least short term. So as we're paying attention to um, all the co-occurring issues, whether it's mental health or physical uh, or otherwise, um, you know, that all becomes very important. But uh, that's sort of a roundabout answer to say, yeah, we've got some things that we've been employing for the last five, 10 years, at least in my experience, um, that have been very helpful, very promising. And, you know, we'll continue to push the envelope to see what else we can we can we can throw on the table just to give somebody the best chance possible for long-term recovery. The uh, the fatal overdose rates are terrifying and seem to be climbing. Is there anything that we can do to reverse this trend? 
you know, it, yes. Um, yes to the statement of you're absolutely right. You know, overdoses increased during the, you know, the early parts of the pandemic. You know, I remember, I remember when, when the pandemic hit and, you know, kind of the world shut down, quote unquote. And uh, I was sitting there with my spouse uh, and we were, you know, after how many weeks um, we were in Pennsylvania, we get the Philadelphia news and we're like, wow, nobody got shot in Philly because Philly is a very dangerous place. I don't want to bash Philly, but every morning they're talking about somebody getting shot or stabbed somewhere. And after a month or two, I think they reported somebody getting killed and we're like, oh, we're back to normal. Somebody got killed in Philadelphia. And that sounds kind of crass. But the other thing that struck me was the Me Too movement was on the forefront of what we were talking about. What we were looking about was a major movement that we needed to pay attention to, and it got pushed to the side. And I think one of the issues is the opioid epidemic got pushed to the side in the news. It was kind of off people's minds for a bit. It was not a major thing that we were presenting to mass society to pay attention to and say, hey, we have to do something about this. And so I think pushing it to the forefront, once again, that this is still happening, you know, just because COVID hit doesn't mean that people stopped doing drugs. In fact, it probably increased. That's what the numbers are telling us. Um, and doing what we can do to get getting headlines. I hate to say that, but uh, to get headlines and to push it to the forefront, you know, diseases get attention when they get pushed into the limelight. You know, people were not paying attention to Parkinson's until Michael J. Fox got it. People weren't paying attention to Parkinson's before Janet Reno. You know, um, Carol Burnett, an early proponent of talking about diabetes. Betty Ford, talking about alcoholism. Nobody was really talking about it. At least it wasn't, as, you know, as, as prominent. And so when we talk about drug-related overdoses, I think it's making sure that people know that this is not going away. And in fact, it has gotten worse in the pandemic. And so I think uh, putting it to the forefront for, for public acknowledgement and then public support is going to be incredibly important to get funding, research, resources, um, and to get people you know, back on people's mind. And it's not like any of the other stuff is not important. I mean, we only have, like I said earlier, only so many resources, um, but to make sure we grab a little piece of that pie and say, look, this isn't going away and we still need to address this because you know, our kids are in danger. Seriously. So, Eric, this is a super broad question, but when parents first meet you and they come in to see you and they're worried to death about their kid and they don't know what it on earth is going on, what do you say to them initially and how do you how do you sort of guide them into uh, coping with the reality of the disease and their recovery? You know, one of, one of the things I will tell parents, any family member is, you know, your loved ones with us, take a breath, at least for right now, at least for today, they're here, they're safe, take a breath. You know, I'll tell you when to panic. You know, you, you, can, you can take a breath. And I think that's the first thing I want to tell them. The second thing is to have some hope. Look, you know, if, you're, if your child, if your loved one has stepped into treatment, there's a modicum of hope there. And don't give up that hope no matter what. Even if they go running off the mountain, don't give up hope. You know, just, just you know, they're, they're willing to at least give it a shot while they're here. Um, and I think those are the two important things to, 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 to keep in mind. I'm, I'm reading a book, actually, that a friend of mine just wrote 
And, and one of the things he says is one of his rules of life is don't panic. No matter what, don't panic. And if you do panic, ground yourself. And I think for any parent, you know, panic is a instant reaction. It's a survival reaction. It's a very normal reaction. And so I would encourage not to panic no matter what. Um, react as swiftly as you need to. But take a breath, ground yourself, because if you're panicking, you can't help somebody else. Um, and, and, and to sort of check yourself, how are you doing? And it's the airplane spiel. Put your own oxygen mask on first. Make sure you're taking care of yourself. Then you can take care of somebody else. And especially if a parent has dropped their child off for treatment, great. We're going to take care of your kid the best we can. Now it's time for you to take care of yourself. Because if you don't get healthy, you're not doing your kid any favors. The most important thing any parent or loved one can do is take care of themselves in the process. Because if the if their loved one, if that child or that that family member is struggling in addiction, in relapse, in whatever the process is, if you're not at your healthiest, you can't help them the best. And that's incredibly easy and simple for me to say sitting here. It's incredibly difficult to do as the parent who's saying, my God, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? But as my best advice is for the parent, for the loved one to take care of themselves first and foremost, so then the best position to take care of that child when that child's willing to accept and receive that love and support. Eric, thank you for the guidance and uh, for the hope. We're very glad you could join us. It's my pleasure, Steve. Thank you so much for having me.